This is Live at Politics and Prose, a program from Slate and Politics and Prose Bookstore in Washington, D.C., featuring some of today's best writers and top thinkers. Um, it's such an honor to welcome Sarah McBride to Politics and Prose for her new memoir. Sarah served as the student body president of some local university. <laughs> Georgetown, I think it was? I'm not sure. Yeah. Oh, come on. We're all here together. And her beautiful coming out later letter sparked a national conversation and thrust her into the forefront in the battle for trans equality and visibility. I had never actually read the full letter until today, and I, I actually wept at my work computer. I now know that my dreams and my identity are only mutually exclusive if I don't try. In Tomorrow We Will Be Different, she details her tireless advocacy journey from her first statement through her work at Equality Delaware, successfully lobbying for protection for trans citizens. And by successfully lobbying, I mean getting laws passed, which is kind of amazing. And through her work as National Press Secretary at the Human Rights Campaign. Throughout all of this, Sarah interweaves a very personal struggle of love, truth, loss, and perseverance. It's a really beautiful document. Please do check it out. Sarah's in conversation tonight with a true advocate and supporter of the trans community, Congressman Joe Kennedy. He's the chair of the Congressional Transgender Equality Task Force. And his insistence on equality, equal pay for equal, equal work, equal rights for equal love, has informed every policy and voting decision he's made in public office. In the face of new threats, he has doubled down on his beliefs, bringing transgender service member Staff Sergeant Patricia King as his guest for the State of the Union, and of course in his fierce intersectional democratic response. Please help me welcome Sarah McBride and Congressman Joe Kennedy. Congressman. What's up? How are you? <laughs> good. Good. Tired, but good. I can imagine. I can imagine. You've been busy. I have. I've been traveling around uh, the country, different city every day, uh, but I've been looking forward to this stop the most, partly because... That's what I'm you tell all the congressmen. That, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's what you tell all the congressmen. Come on. Um, mostly because... You can finish the sentence. Go for well, it. Well, I was going to say mostly because uh, you're here, of course. <laughs> no, but seriously, there is... Uh, Probably no one in Congress who's a uh, more vocal champion of the trans community and trans equality than you. Thank so I want to take this opportunity to, to express my thanks for you, uh, for your work, for you, uh, for your voice. It, it's saving lives. Um, and of course, because back here home by American University and with all of you, I appreciate you coming out on this snowy or sort of snowy night. Uh, we can celebrate what hopes to be a snow day tomorrow. So everyone wear your pajamas inside out. <laughs> And, uh, and I'm looking forward to chatting a little bit about the book. We're going to have a conversation up here and then open it up for questions. So start thinking about your questions. There you go. Um, so let me say, first off, thank you to all of you for coming. Thank you to Politics and Press for, for hosting us. Incredibly kind of you. Um, I was absolutely thrilled to get this invitation to join you. Um, Sarah, it's... Um, I'll do my best to keep this short because this night obviously is not about me. Um, there's these kind of unique moments that you have as a member of Congress where you actually get to sit on a stage with somebody that um, not only is younger than you are, um, but that is somebody that you look up to, um, and that's somebody 
um, particularly the moment that we find ourselves in um, in our, our country at the moment, the political discourse, where you see younger Americans that are just shaking off platitudes and explanations and excuses and just saying, no way, I count, my voice counts. Um, and Sarah, you've been doing that for an awful long time and you have demanded um, that we as a community, as a people, as a country, see you for uh, the beautiful person that you are. Um, and <laughs> <laughs> um, and that's a pretty amazing thing. So thank you uh, for your courage in doing so. Thank you for inviting me to be part of this. Um, and I'm thrilled to do it. So I've got a couple of questions which um, I want to get through. I'll get through them as best as I can. And then we obviously want to open up to hear from all of you. So um, first one, hard-hitting one, insightful one is, why'd you write a book? Well, I, I think there's some audacity in a 27-year-old writing a book. So I was perpetually rolling my eyes as I was writing this. Um, but I, I wrote it because I believe this is a critical moment in the fight for trans equality. Uh, I started writing uh, in the aftermath of the convention after I spoke at the DNC, and obviously there was a ton of unfinished work at that time. But of course, the election of Donald Trump and Mike Pence brought a new urgency uh, to this fight, and particularly a new urgency to sharing our stories. Because so often in this national dialogue on trans equality, we lose the simple fact that at the center of it are real people who love and laugh, hope and dream, fear and cry just like everyone else. And I felt like I had have had quite a bit of life in the last six years um, and that there was a story within that life that could help to open some minds and, 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 and hearts and hopefully serve as an entry point for some folks to gain a deeper understanding of what it means to be transgender, what it's like to be transgender and to arm themselves more with the information, with the empathy that they need to be more like you and go out and be a passionate fighter for equality. Um, thanks. <laughs> Just mutual admiration. Right, we'll, 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 we'll get to some of that later because I've got a question on that part too. Um, so walk us through a little bit uh, of your story. You um, decided to come out as transgender at um, the age of 21 and as you all heard, if you haven't read it, an extraordinarily eloquent and passionate uh, letter to your college community. Um, why was it important for you to come out so publicly and walk us through what that experience must have been like for you? So, you know, I always, I always try to preface that, that uh, no two stories are the same, that, that when you've met one transgender person, that means you've met one transgender person. Um, but for me, I, I've known that I'm transgender my entire life. I remember some of my earliest memories lying in my bed at night praying that I would wake up the next day and just be myself. Um, I think one of the challenges in the fight for trans equality that differs from the effort around uh, gay, lesbian, bisexual, and queer rights is that most straight people understand what it feels like to love, um, and so they're able to enter into conversations around sexual orientation with a degree of empathy uh, based on their own personal experience. But for folks who aren't transgender, for folks who are cisgender, it's a little bit more difficult because you don't necessarily have an analogous experience to that feeling of having a gender identity that differs from your sex assigned at birth. And for me, growing up, being in the closet, it felt like a constant feeling of homesickness, that unwavering ache in the pit of my stomach that would only go away when I could be seen and affirmed as myself. 
But for a while, I kept it inside. As, as you mentioned, I kept it inside for the first 21 years. I told myself that if I could make it worthwhile for other people for me to stay in the closet by making a difference in this world, by making my family proud, that those things would somehow bring me the wholeness and completeness that I sought. But it wasn't until I went to American and was elected student body president and I think had the experiences I, need, I needed to come to the conclusion that making a change, making my community better, it would bring me a great deal of fulfillment, but it wouldn't feel the void of living in the closet. And I decided, I came out to my parents on Christmas Day in 2011, completely ruined Christmas. Um, <laughs> there's nothing to do after you open presents, so <laughs> decided to have a nice conversation. Um, How'd that go? It, it was, my parents were shocked. Um, more than anything else, they were scared. Scared of rejection in every sense of the word, but they made clear that they loved me and, and, and accepted me as the person that I am. And in many ways, and I, and I sort of knew this going in, that it would feel like a loss for them. That it, they would grieve the child they thought I was, a lot of the expectations that they had for me moving forward. But that in time, they would see that I'm still the same child with the same interests and terrible sense of humor and the same smile. Um, and the first night after I came out, my, my dad went online and he Googled the word transgender. And he came across a survey put out by the National Center for Transgender Equality and the National LGBTQ Task Force called Injustice at Every Turn. And he came across a startling statistic that I think so many people are familiar with, which is that 41% of respondents in that survey said that they had attempted suicide at some point in their lives. Uh, but he saw, in looking at that number, that that number dropped dramatically when the transgender person is accepted by their family and dropped even further when the transgender person is accepted by their community. And so that first night, my parents, crying in their beds, resolved that as difficult as it was, as it would be for them, they needed to love and accept me, not just because that's their job as parents, but because society would be looking at them for the standard, for how to respond, because we all look to each other when we are dealt with something that we're not totally sure we understand. We look to each other for how we should behave and how, should we, how we should respond. And so they knew that acceptance would create an expectation, while any kind of sense of rejection would provide an excuse for other people to reject me. And so they stood by my side, and with their courage, I decided to come out publicly at the end of my term at AU. And, and, and I did that because I knew, this was 2012, that there would be a lot of gossip when I came out. And the first thing they tell you, sort of in crisis management, and it you know, was a, a, wasn't a bad crisis, but that you get your news out on your own terms and in your own words. And I knew that if I could get my, word, my, my experience out there, that it would help to humanize not just my experience, but hopefully the experience of, of other transgender people, recognizing my privilege, recognizing the limitations of my own story. And I also felt a responsibility as student body president to try to educate the campus community and whoever else would read it. Um, and I, while I was scared about the reaction, it was nothing but supportive. It was just co a completely overwhelming experience of love, acceptance, and, and joy. And one student compared it to seeming like the school had won a sports championship. And we don't really do that very often, so I don't know how we would know. Um, but it wasn't about me. It was just about the fact that everyone around the campus was celebrating the campus, making a statement to this country, which is that while we still may be learning 
about transgender people and identities, this is how you respond. What do you attribute that to, the, the response that you got from your, your campus colleagues? And obviously you were high profile, you're a student body, body president, but um, why do you think you, why do you think that was a reaction that they had? Well, I think one of the reasons is that AU is a politically aware and engaged campus. And I think as students of history, they understand that discrimination never wears well in history, that rejection never wears well in history. And I always said as a student body president that we should make our college campus look like the country we want to build in 10 or 15 years. And I think people saw it as an opportunity to make that kind of statement, to, to um, be confronted with an issue that they may struggle with, but to exercise the most powerful human emotion of, of empathy and respond with compassion. And, and so that was part of it. But also I would be remiss if I, if I didn't acknowledge the fact that I was doing it with a great deal of privilege. The privilege of building these relationships as student body president, the privilege of being white, the privilege of, of my economic background, all of these different things that provided me a degree of support and opportunity um, that I think ensured that I came out in a really accepting environment. And when I looked around campus, it was abundantly clear to me that as great as AU is, it wasn't necessarily the reality for every trans student on campus, and it certainly wasn't the reality for most transgender people across this country. And if coming out was the easiest, hardest thing that I had ever done, it was still relatively easy compared to the experience of most, and that's why I wanted to get into advocacy, because it shouldn't be a privilege to keep your family or be safe from violence or not be kicked out of a school or fired from a job when you come out. I'll clap to that. So you brought up adv advocacy, and I want to touch on um, some of the early work that you did in your home state of Delaware. Um, and it seems like that experience really helped shape how you think about the role of a public advocate and the legal process and um, community engagement. So walk us through that if you can. Sure. So uh, when I came out I uh, and I prepared to graduate from college, I was faced with a decision no one should have to make, but one that is far too common for LGBTQ people, the decision between going home to the place you love or being safe and secure. Uh, because at that time, Delaware was one of, one of a majority of states, uh, to this day a majority of states, still lack explicit protections for not just transgender people, but LGBTQ people more broadly in employment and housing and public spaces. Um, and I was scared to go back to a state where I wasn't protected from discrimination. Um, and I also knew that I had the privilege of, of picking a place that potentially could have protections like DC, and there are far too many people back in Delaware who didn't have that kind of opportunity. So I went back during uh, the second half of the week of my second semester of senior year when I wasn't in class, and then right after I graduated permanently uh, you had a week where you weren't in class as a senior? Second half. Sec right. I had, I had, College I was, is great. Right? <laughs> right? It was, it was absolutely wonderful. <laughs> I wasn't doing much schoolwork the first half of the week, though, either. Um, and, and so I went back, and I, and I worked with Equality Delaware, the human rights campaign where I now work, came in and, and brought in money and staff and resources and, and, and knowledge. Uh, and day in and day out, we talked to these legislators and we told them our stories as transgender people we had our family members come in our parents come in reminding people that transgender people have families 
have friends. Uh, so what was the response from those legislators? Walk me through that a bit. So first off, we, we started with the friendly legislators and then worked our way sort of. We didn't go to the really, we didn't spend as much time with the really bad legislators, but we, we worked our way sort of to the, to the middle. And I remember starting out, I was so scared that if the bill didn't pass, because I was probably the most visible person in that fight, that it would be an, an implicit rejection of me. Uh, that it would be very clearly the state legislature saying, we don't want you to come home. And I remember in trying to sort of protect myself from the feeling of really personal rejection, I started out sort of talking about facts and statistics and being abstract. And I saw the legislators just not care. And I saw them respond to my parents, who, one, are parents, and, and I think they could empathize with their experience as parents, but also were talking about their own personal experiences and were being vulnerable. And I think in many ways, one, I recognize that the political is personal. And I needed to, to, in that fight, be willing to be vulnerable just like my parents. Because vulnerability transcends ideology, it transcends geography, it transcends race, religion, and gender. Everyone understands what it feels like to be vulnerable or to be scared or feel, to feel like you're on the outside looking in. And you don't want that for yourself and hopefully you don't want that for other people. And so I recognize that vulnerability is oftentimes that best path toward justice and that if you can tap into their empathy, not just with stats and facts, but with human stories, that the legislators would no longer be able to look us in the eye and deny us the equal protection of the laws. I remember one legislator, as, as at one point, if you read the book, we, we, I go through the effort in Delaware, our vote count is crumbling in the House, and one legislator says to uh, the president of Equality Delaware, I, I'm so scared to vote for this. I think it's gonna, I'm going to lose re-election, but I gave Sarah a promise. And I think that human connection, putting a face or faces to this issue, makes a world of difference. It's not going to open every heart and, and change every mind. It's not going to pass this kind of legislation in every state. But it is the foundation upon which I, I do think that we can achieve equality. And I think I saw that in Delaware. It was difficult, but at the end of the day, we were able to convince just enough including in the state senate by one vote, just enough legislators to say, we see you, we love you, and the heart of this state is big enough to love you too. So um, from somebody that, I, I can speak to this a little bit from the other side of that, um, somebody that came into office with a strong record of um, uh, LGB, um, advocacy, um, but that hadn't had a whole lot of exposure necessarily to trans rights. Um, the courage of members of the trans community to um, spend some time with me, to be patient with me, to tell their stories, stats um, are important. The human side of this um, is so incredibly critical, and I will tell you, um, I think your insight on this is right on, uh, although I, I wasn't necessarily at this point then. Um, I've got a two-year-old and a three-month-old. Um, some of the most powerful advocates are parents um, because uh, not only do they tell these incredibly compelling stories, but when it comes to a parent's love for their child, it's what so it is something that 
all, most every single parent can relate to. Um, the the challenge is even in a state like Massachusetts, which we can we'll get into this a little bit later, has on the one hand a perceived reputation of being so forward leaning on these issues when it comes to trans rights. We're not, and we're actually under threat um, with a rollback by ballot initiative of some of these issues in, in referendum in November. Yeah. Um, but the the willingness of members of the community to um, spend time with uh, members to, to, uh, of the legislature to walk them through it, to tell their own, um, open up their vulnerability, walk through what it's like to be afraid for your child, walk through what it's like, the, the, the issues that um, young members of the trans community had to take into account just over the course of their, their day. The, the fact that parents, one parent, and it still sticks with me, had a folder full of affidavits from their neighbors because other parents at, from summer camps would call to report them to the police to say that they were abusing their child and had a, a safe folder of affidavits put forth to say, no, we're not, we're supporting our child and here's record after record after record. Um, this burden though comes down on advocates and it comes down on folks in the community to be willing to shoulder it. It's not fair, it's not right, but I have to say from somebody who um, has found a voice on this. It has been because of you and so many members of the community and their parents that have been willing to, to shoulder that and their patience that they've shown. So thank you. Well, thank you. And I, and I think your point, both points that you make is so well are, are so well taken. One, you know, I think one of the more dangerous narratives in the LGBTQ community is that every person has to be out, right? As you said, that that is an unfair burden to place on an already marginalized community as trans people that can so often put that asterisk on our gender identity, which can cause pain. Um, and I'm not gonna fight for every person to live their sexual orientation and gender identity the way they need to by telling them the way they should live their sexual orientation or gender identity. But there's also no question that if you feel safe and if you feel comfortable, there can be few things more empowering than sharing your story. And there can be few things more transformative than sharing your story. And I remember you know, the first couple days after I came out to my parents, answering every question they had, I recognized that if, if, if I meet someone where they are with a, and they have a willingness to grow and a willingness to learn and a willingness to listen, that we can move people, that we can demonstrate the stakes of this issue, the humanity of this issue, we can tap into their empathy. And that experience with my parents early on has sort of been my model for advocacy of, of I don't necessarily, I'm going to require every single person to do this, but willing to go in and take the time to talk through every single uh, aspect of, of this, of, 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 of the issues and challenges we face and be vulnerable. Because I do think that, that that will be our path forward. I agree. And thank you for being willing to do it. Um, next question um, uh, is what do you think are the biggest challenges facing the trans community at the federal level? And I can think of two. <laughs> um, but I'll let you answer that. Donald Trump and Mike Pence? Yeah, that yeah, would be yeah. Yeah, There you go. <laughs> um, you know, under President Obama, we had eight years of <coughs> incredible progress and really unparalleled, um, present company excluded allyship in the White House. Um, 
I can't overstate the sort of sea change from that administration to this administration, from that presidency of progress to this presidency of prejudice. Um, and from the start, we have seen attack after attack after attack on the trans community by the Trump-Pence administration. We've seen the rescinding of life-saving guidance, promoting the protection of trans students. We've seen the granting of a sweeping license to discriminate to government workers, federal contractors, healthcare professionals against LGBTQ people, among others. We've seen the appointment of anti-equality activists um, and, and anti-equality extremists to the federal bench and administration positions. And of course, in those series of impulsive tweets, although every single one of his tweets are impulsive, um, the president attempted to reinstate a ban on, on uh, transgender people serving openly in the military. Which obviously faced some serious pushback even from leaders of the military, which was right. also interesting to see. And I think, and I think what is really incredible, and I think we've seen this with every attack, uh, whether it's attacks at the federal level or attacks at the state level, it's that every time they come for us, whether it's Donald Trump and Mike Pence or whether it's Pat McCrory, they end up creating a conversation that serves to educate the public and ends up sowing the seeds of the destruction of the politics of hate that they seek to implement. And I think we've seen that in North Carolina. I think we're seeing that nationally in response to these attacks. Um, but what we need and what we are already seeing is we need our allies to stand up and to call the White House to oppose the trans troop ban, to call their members of Congress um, to, to, to push for pro-quality legislation, to make sure that we're uh, protecting health care and DACA recipients. Um, but I think throughout each step, we've seen that these attacks are actually making us stronger as a movement. Um, and to this day, as I said, a majority of states and the federal government still lack those clear and explicit protections. So we need to elect more pro-equality candidates up and down the ballot to make sure that we can pass the Equality Act and finally get comprehensive non-discrimination protections. And then I'd be remiss if I also didn't say that this isn't necessarily a specific policy issue, but 2017 was the deadliest year on record for the transgender community, at least 28 transgender people, mostly trans women of color, were killed. And we need our policymakers and lawmakers, one, to acknowledge the epidemic of violence and this crisis that exists, and two, we need to elect leaders who don't appeal to the darkest undercurrents of our society and in the end embolden hate that leads to that fatal violence. So those, I think, are some of the main challenges we face and some of the main issues we have at the federal level. Um, I would agree, very well said, and um, look, candidly, uh, we've got uh, a group that's trying to lead on some of those issues. We could use some help, right? Um, writ large across, not just the federal government, but you also mentioned a couple of states, North Carolina obviously being one of them. But uh, if you can, break that down to the state level. How do you see this playing out, uh, this, these fights playing out across the states? Well, last year we, uh, the Human Rights Campaign tracked uh, more than 130 anti-LGBTQ bills in 30 states. Um, and, and two of the most common forms of anti-LGBTQ bills are obviously these so-called religious freedom bills, uh, bills that, that seek to license discrimination under the guise of religious freedom. And I think it is so important for us as a community and for our allies to make clear that this is truly a corrupting of religious freedom, that religious freedom is a fundamental American value, but it has always been a shield for religious minorities against government persecution. It is not a sword to inflict harm on people. Um, and then the second form of, of these terrible bills are the sort of North Carolina anti-trans style bills. Um, and one of the most frequent questions I get from people is, why are y'all talking so much about bathrooms? And 
my response is sort of threefold. The first is that, frankly, trans folks would rather not be ta- to not talk about bathrooms. We'd rather talk about equality and dignity throughout daily life. It's our opponents of equality who keep focusing in on bathrooms. And they do it for two reasons. One is a political messaging reason. They understand that everyone feels a little bit vulnerable in bathrooms. And that makes bathrooms fertile ground to stoke fears and spread misinformation, to stoke on the um, lack of education that still exists in far too many places. But it's also more insidious than just political messaging. It's also rooted in the fact that they understand, as they have in the effort around the Civil Rights Act, as they understood around the Equal Rights Amendment, the early days of the gay rights movement, the Americans with Disabilities Act, and now with the trans rights movement, that if they lose on everything else but win on bathrooms, if they can allow or legislate discrimination in restrooms, it becomes the closest thing to a silver bullet to pushing transgender people out of public life. Because if you can't use a restroom that makes sense for you, it becomes much more difficult to go to work or to go to school or to leave your house for more than a few hours. These are nothing more than thinly veiled attempts to push transgender people out of public life. And we need our allies to recognize that while it may seem silly, that this is a truly dangerous agenda. And we need our allies to speak out and to fight back against those bills. There are a number of anti-LGBTQ bills that have been introduced this year. But we're also seeing, I think, at the local and state level, and it's a reminder that even with Donald Trump in the White House, we can still make progress on legal equality. We see more states protecting youth from so-called conversion therapy. We're seeing more school districts adopt inclusive policies and practices. We're seeing uh, more localities adopt non-discrimination protections. We're continuing to move the ball forward in a number of places. But we do see an onslaught of hate in far too many states, and not just the states you'd expect, but of course, we've got challenges in, in places like like Massachusetts. Um, we do, um, and it's. Uh, I'll give a shout out here um, because if you're a politician from Boston, you have to do our Boston sports teams. Um, <laughs> as this initiative, so Massachusetts passed um, public accommodations protections for members of the trans community two years ago, I believe. Um, and you were a big part of that. You, uh, you a lot were, of people were, but yes, yeah. thank you. A, a lot of folks were. Some of the great leaders of it in that effort were the Boston sports teams. Um, and they've all re-upped again, which has been fantastic to see. But um, you can imagine, uh, and, and one of the first ones to say so, uh, were some of our, our more well-known franchises, the Red Sox and, and the Patriots. Um, and they have leaned right into this to say, one, we want to make sure that any fan has a, a home here while they're our teams are playing and two you can imagine if there was any if there was a venue that would know that there was a problem with a bathroom it would be someone that a a stadium that has hundreds of thousands of people pass through Um, we've had these protections not one reported incident (laughs) so when you have opponents say this is a major threat this is an issue folks if it ain't an issue for a bunch of celebratory patriots fans and (laughs) like go eagles You really cut like me sports. deep on that one. So, so a credit to to the leadership of those organizations and the institutions to, to stand out, step forward, be willing to take this on, um, but also for them willing to be share, to to share those stories and say, look, it's it's just not an issue. It, it hasn't been. It's it's not. Um, and that's so, been the case in yeah. every place where these protections, the over 100 localities that have adopted the protections, the almost 20 states that have adopted these protections, there's no reported increase in public safety incidences. It's, it's a complete logical fallacy. It's a complete fabrication. 
and it's done to prey on these fears. So, uh, regardless, there are uh, there there is this ballot initiative in Massachusetts, which is something we all in in the community in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts have to push back on. And I'm happy to carry on that conversation with folks later. Um, I want to shift a little bit now to um, some of the other personal aspects that you touch on in the book, and um, in particularly, um, or in particular, um, one of the more uh, heart wrenching parts of the book is the description of your time with um, your husband, late husband Andy. Um, you write openly about um, the joy that you obviously shared with him and the cruelty and the stress um, that you went through in his sickness and his passing. And I wanted to um, get you to just talk a little bit about um, what experiences from that time stand out to you and, and um, how that experience has helped shape your message and advocacy sense. For those <laughs> who aren't aren't familiar? Um, shortly after I I came out, I met an an incredible incredible transgender man named Andy Cray. Um, he was an advocate, an attorney. He was working at the Center for American Progress, where I also worked for several years, trying to expand access to healthcare for LGBTQ people. Um, when we met, I had admired his extraordinary advocacy, his courage, his sense of humor, his our mutual love of terrible reality television. And I, f I, fell, I fell for him um, pretty hard. And after we started dating, Andy was diagnosed with cancer. He went through radiation, chemo, and surgery. Got a clean bill of health, but then several months later, he got the news that every single patient fears. Uh, his cancer was back, it had spread, and for him it was terminal. When Andy found out that he didn't have much time left, he, he asked me to marry him. And we married on the rooftop of our building in front of family and friends, many of whom are here today. Uh, and then four days after that, he passed away. And I share that story now, and I shared that story in the book for, for, for two reasons, for many reasons, but, but two reasons in particular. The first is that knowing and loving Andy left me profoundly changed. He taught me how to love and be loved. He taught me how to live the values I fight for at work in my own life. But more than anything else, my relationship with Andy underscored for me that change cannot come fast enough. That every single day matters when it comes to building a world where every person can live their life to the fullest. Andy came out at a relatively young age. He was supposed to have three quarters of his life as his authentic self. But because of these circumstances, he had less than a quarter. And we know that so many people have even less time than that. And so his passing for me underscored what Dr. King called the fierce urgency of now. Um, that when we ask marginalized people, including transgender people, to sit back and allow for a slow conversation to take place before we treat them with dignity in the eyes of society or equality under the law, we are asking that person to watch their one life pass by without the respect and fairness that every person deserves. And that is far too much to ask of anyone. And so I wanted, in sharing that story, to underscore for folks the urgency of this fight, that we need you to speak out, we need you to fight, we need you to help us bend the arc of the moral universe just a little bit more towards justice, not tomorrow, not next month, not when it's the most politically palatable, but right now. You know, in the last month of, of Andy's life, I have a chapter that's titled, entitled Amazing Grace. And one of the experiences from 
that last month for me that I think has shaped my approach, my ability to move forward, uh, particularly as I, like many people, are struggling with sort of this crisis of how do we move forward from the last election or from the 2016 election. And the lesson came from my brother, who's a radiation oncologist, and he said to me, this is going to be incredibly difficult, but look around and take stock in acts of amazing grace that you will see around you. And whether it was the miracle of Andy living long enough to see our wedding day, when by all accounts he probably should have passed before then, whether it was the miracle of, of our friends organizing a wedding for us in five days, those acts of amazing grace were everywhere. And what it taught me is that all of us, even in the darkest moments, even in the most troubling times, can see amazing grace all around us. It reminded me that hope only makes sense in the face of hardship. And for me, I, I think that is the lesson of the last year. It's the lesson of our movement and our community, which is that there is amazing grace that is happening all, over, all around us. And that through that grace, we have transformed impossibility into possibility into reality. We've seen that change is possible. And if we've done it before, that I know we can do it again. And so for me, those experiences inform who I am. And I bring them to my work every single day. And I ask myself one simple question, which is what would Andy do in everything I do? Sounds like a pretty incredible guy. You uh, write in the book about many of the young uh, trans uh, kids that you uh, met with and come in contact with all throughout your advocacy work. Um, in particular, one stands out, uh, a little girl named Lulu, who asked a question which really moved you, from what I understand. And it's, what's your favorite part about being transgender? Uh, you now have uh, done what any good politician does, which is steal that question, take it for yourself. <laughs> And turn it around and ask every audience. Um, so what was your answer to the question, and why do you ask it? it? I mean, it took me 26 years to get asked that question. I feel like I get asked the question, how do you deal with being transgender, or how do you deal with the challenges? And for Lulu, the seven-year-old transgender girl, to, to have her first question and be, be f so filled with pride, I think is a demonstration of what I just talked about of tra transforming impossibility into possibility into reality. And it is such an important perspective to come from. Uh, you know, I told her that, that my favorite part about being transgender, there are actually three things that I love about being transgender. The first is that I think being transgender has made me a better, more compassionate person. Two, being transgender led me to my husband, Andy. And three, being transgender has brought me into a community that is beautiful, brilliant, and brave, a community that is finally being seen in our worth and in our dignity. And I couldn't be prouder to be a part of that community. I couldn't be prouder to be transgender. And I go out and I ask young transgender people, my favorite part about my job is I get to meet young transgender kids across the country. And I get to go out and ask these young transgender kids, what's their favorite part about being transgender? And they don't bat an eye when I ask them that question. They, they not only have thought about it, but that's how they approach who they are from the start. And the fact that, that these young transgender people exist today holding in one hand the knowledge of all of the hate that exists in this world, 
but holding in the other the knowledge that their identities are worth celebrating and that their lives matter is a model for all of us. Um, I met one transgender girl named Stella who, when I asked her what she wants to be when she grows up, she declared without any hesitation that she will be the first transgender president. And for me, as someone growing up who always believed that there was no room in advocacy or in government or in politics for people like me to meet a young 13-year-old transgender girl who is both dreaming big dreams and living authentically all at the same time is a demonstration of our progress. And as many challenges as remain, as much work needs to be done, I don't think we can ever forget how far we've come. We can never forget that we have done what is politics at its best, which is not the art of the possible, but the art of turning the impossible into possibility. Given that, and given that story, um, what do you, as readers go through your book, what is it that you want them to take away from it? What is it that you hope that they take away from it? I think the, <clears throat> the, the best part about writing this book was that for me, I'm going to be up front. I was going through a crisis of faith after the election, after the 2016 election. Yeah, me too. Right? I think all of us were. <laughs> and, and, and I think particularly for folks, you know, I, I think particularly for folks in um, my generation, the millennial generation that grew up in sort of the rise of Barack Obama and the presidency of Barack Obama, I think there was this false sense of complacency that the arc of the moral universe inalterably bends towards justice regardless. And I think there were certainly a lot of people in my generation that knew that that wasn't the case, but I think there was some degree of a false sense of complacency. And I think what we very clearly now see is that does bend towards justice, but only because people bend it that way. And the best thing about writing this book was that even through some of the heartbreaking lows, even in the trouble of experiencing some of the hardest moments of my life, I refound my hope in writing this book. And my hope my desire for people reading this book is that through it all, you get the information, you see that transgender people are people, all of these basic important things that you need to know, but I also hope that at the end, people can find their hope. Um, and in talking with a lot of people who've read it, I feel like it's doing that for some people, and if it does it for one person, then for me, it's mission accomplished. Good for you. Kick it open to the audience. There's a microphone over here as well. Thank you. Yep. Yes. Hello. Thank you so much for your powerful story sharing. I see why you got elected uh, president of the student body. You, you are, you are <laughs> I knocked on every door. <laughs> they actually created a policy where you couldn't knock on any doors because of, because of me. <laughs> So you're a very eloquent speaker, and I think you all held us uh, in your in the palm of your hand as you told your story. So thank you for sharing it. It's uh, so I guess my question is about the future um, and the role that young people will play in accepting difference and diversity. Do you have any statistics on polls about like so many other things? I think the millennial generation is going to save us. So is that true? <laughs> You don't have to make it any harder. Just yeah. To put that up there. Well, I, 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 I think uh, yes and no. Um, look, there's definitely no question that, particularly when it comes to LGBTQ equality, that um, 
younger people are far more, are the most supportive, are incredibly supportive. Um, they know LGBTQ people, they know transgender people in their own lives, in their schools, and they just don't understand why we're all having to argue about what seems so obvious. But also young people are not perfect, right? Young people still can be homophobic and transphobic and racist and misogynistic and xenophobic, right? We, we can't ignore and uh, we can't gloss over the challenges that will remain when the millennial generation and the generation Z or whatever is after the millennial generation take power, that there are still gonna be challenges. But I do think what we are seeing, and I think in particular after Parkland, what I think we've, we've been seeing is that young people are uniquely capable to address the issues that we face right now for two reasons. One is new and one has always existed about young people. The first is that one of the greatest challenges I think we face right now is how do we channel new technologies to make sure that we're bridging the divide that exists where everyone's getting their own individualized information and news and facts. How does democracy work when we have those individualized sources of media? And how do we reach people that right now feel completely unreachable to half the country? Um, and I think as young people, as the first generations of digital natives, I think our generation is uniquely capable of figuring out, of solving that problem that I think has plagued the, la the, the, the last two presidents, two or three presidents. Um, and only if we are able to then channel social media and new media for good, well, I, I think we'll, we'll be, will we be able to move forward. But I think young people are uniquely capable of making sure that instead of comment sections overtaking society and electing a president, um, that the marginalized voices that we're seeing on Twitter and, and, and Facebook being amplified for the first time, that that's, that that's what ends up um, become, becoming the predominant force. The second reason why young people are uniquely capable and why I do think young voices are vital in this fight is that young people have always been on the forefront of social change. And that's because, one, young people are always, in, at least over the last 100 years, have always been more diverse than their older counterparts. And so they are able to sort of get through a lot of the misconceptions around identities. But it's also because young people, every time they participate in politics, they speak from a place of history. And it's not the history of the past, but the history that remains to be written. Because young people will be the ones that write the history books of tomorrow. Young people... I, I'm still 27, so I hope I'm young. We will get to decide who was right and who was sort of, who was right and who was wrong in this moment. And I think adults and elected officials know that. And that is an incredible gravity to our voices, to young voices that we carry with us in the scariest of spaces to the safest of places. And I think because of that gravity, young people are uniquely capable of fixing a lot of issues that we face, so yes. Um, as a young person myself, uh, uh, I guess it's sort of in the current climate, uh, you know, politics seems sort of, it seems almost inaccessible, I guess, um, even as someone who sort of reads books about history and sort of politics as much as I can. Um, so I guess I'm just wondering, um, how do you sort of break it down? How do you make it something that you can sort of manage and sort of don't get overwhelmed by? We're going to um, take two questions at a time so we can try to get through as many of these okay, as we can. Great call. We have uh, some time left, but probably not enough to get to everybody individually. So please. Sure. 
for the 2024 ticket is going to be Kennedy McBride or McBride Kennedy. <laughs> After what you just heard, what do you think? <laughs> I'll be 34, so I'm not constitutionally eligible for either. But I'll work for this guy. You're making me feel pretty old. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> thank you for that comment. That's not a question. So um, how do I, I, I mean, look, I, I, there are times where it's really overwhelming. Um, and there are times that it's difficult to start to feel hopeless, but Valerie Jarrett tweeted this the other day, and it's very millennial of me to quote a tweet, but um, <laughs> she was probably quoting someone else, but she said, Chain change always seems impossible until it's inevitable. And I think that that's what we've seen throughout our history. Um, it's oftentimes in the darkest moments that movements are born, that history is made. It's oftentimes in the instances where you see hate rear its ugly head that people finally recognize just how wrong that hate is. I think that what we have seen is we have seen a movement that has grown exponentially over the last year and a half of people of every background and walk of life coming forward, marching, protesting, writing and calling their members of Congress, and we're already seeing that it works. And if it can work when folks who aren't great, and not to get partisan, but when, when, when non-pro-equality, when anti-equality politicians control the White House, control far too many state legislatures, control both chambers of Congress, if we're able to achieve what we've been able to achieve over the last year and a half in protecting the Affordable Care Act and in beating back these anti-equality bills, if we've been able to do that over the last year, imagine what we can do when we actually gain the power, when we actually elect enough people that we have control of those chambers of Congress and those state legislatures and the presidency. And I am convinced that we will get to that place very, very quickly, I think. And I think we will be uniquely ready once we have that with the movement that we've constructed, with the progressive voices that are finally com coming forward and being amplified and being lifted up, that we'll be able to create the kind of change that right now may seem impossible. But when it does, it will have seemed inevitable. So thank you. Sir. Uh, speaking as an old person, uh, <coughs> You know, I've, I've witnessed the, the long slog for uh, racial equality and, and uh, for women, and it's been remarkable how quickly the LGB uh, movement moved since 2006 when the issue was used to, uh, or whichever year it was, but it, it, when it was used as a divisive thing. Suddenly now, gay marriage is a constitutional right, what, what I'm puzzled by, and puzzled in sort of a good way, is how, how is it that <clears throat> when um, President Trump tried to ban transgender from the military, amazingly, Senator Orrin Hatch came out and opposed it, and uh, Mattis opposed it, and the Joint Chiefs opposed it, and yet, so while this, the, that element of society is still fighting to some degree, a last-ditch battle on gay marriage, they all seem to come to the defense of transgender. I'm, I, and I'm genuinely puzzled. And what do you, how do you reconcile that? Let's take one over here, too. Thank you. Just a little bit of a different question, different topic. Um, 
My name's Ellen. I'm a sophomore at AU. I'm Yay. studying Poly Sci, um, and I'm from Massachusetts. And what part? Um, Natick. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> you can move into the fourth district. We'll take you anytime. <laughs> um, so my question is, as a college student, what are some like concrete things that I can do to be an ally to the trans community? Like. I feel like there's a lot of like vague ideas about like being an ally and supporting, but what are some actual like concrete things that I can spend my time doing? Sure, that's that's a great question. So on the first question about sort of uh, the, the what feels like a rapid rate of change and and people like Orrin Hatch being good on certain issues when they were not great on issues before. Yeah, I I I, I think. There's no question that from 2004, I think, to the Obergefell decision that, that things happened on marriage equality maybe f quicker than a lot of people anticipated, but it also didn't happen overnight, right? That was the result of 40 years of work, of people coming out, of allies standing up, of, of infrastructure building and movement building that allowed us to go from a place where in 2004 and 2006, 30-some states adopted marriage bans to a place where marriage equality is the uh, reality in every single state in the country. And that was a result of incredible movement building. I think that, uh, you know, on the, on, on, on the issue of trans folks and sort of support for trans people right now, um, I think in many ways we've become the new boogeyman of anti-equality politicians and activists. I think, to your point, they're seeing that Political support, public support is actually very much behind us. I think the bipartisan outrage to the transgender troop ban is a byproduct of two things. One, it is a policy that literally has absolutely no logic and absolutely no reason. Um, and that is seen across the board, I think. Um, but it's also a reflection of popular opinion, to your point. And I think in many ways, because of this joint movement, there are a lot of people who, on the issue of marriage equality, remember being wrong, and they regret being wrong. And that experience is fresh in their minds. And so when they come to the issue of trans equality, I think part of it is that they don't want to be wrong again. And they understand that maybe they don't understand it, maybe they don't have their minds wrapped around it, there's definitely a lot to learn, but they don't want to be on the wrong side of history again. And I also think that I think, I, I think because of social media, we have seen the amplification of trans voices and trans stories, of diverse trans voices and trans stories, that I think has laid the foundation for those folks on both sides of the aisle to support us because of the public opinion that has been swayed because those stories have been heard. Um, allies. Allies. I think there are, are first off, there, there are three things I'd say. First is, everyone always says this, but it's true. Speak out even when it seems small. We need our allies not just to be allies, but accomplices, which means putting something on the line, right? Making folks a little bit uncomfortable. That means if you hear the joke, if you hear the comment in class, if you hear it on the quad, if you hear it in the DAV or, you know, what I'm just endless AU references. Um, <laughs> TDR, um, <laughs> to say something, right? It, it, it may seem like a small comment, but it might be the 20th time a transgender person has heard it that day. It may make other people uncomfortable, it may make you seem like a downer, but it's the little things collected as a whole 
that can feed really significant discrimination and violence. So it's, it's, it's speaking out even when it seems small. It's speaking out when it seems big. It's attending those rallies. It's, it's making sure that you are uh, protesting anytime this president and his administration try to legalize or legislate or implement discrimination. Um, it's also not ignoring the change that's right in front of you. I think AU students in particular can be guilty of this. I saw it when I was there, which is that we're so consumed with the change that we can make in 20 years that we forget about the change we can make right in front of us. So run for student government. R be a part of campus organizations. Make sure your program is, programming is inclusive for trans people. Making sh make sure that if you're in student government, you're advocating for the university to adopt more and more inclusive policies. These are tangible ways that you can contribute and help save lives, empower lives right now, right in front of you, right on AU's campus. I'm going to add one more. <clears throat> I'm going to imagine at a national university like AU, you're going to have friends from a whole bunch of different states. That's one of the unique opportunities that a university like AU has is you bring people in from all over the country. Um, even if the members of your congressional delegation are great on LGBT rights, I guarantee you, you have friends that are in states that they're not. They can write a letter to their congressman. They can write a letter to their senator. They can get their friends to do it. They can get their parents to do it. They, just so people know how that works, you write a letter into our offices, we need to respond. If we don't respond, that's a letter to the editor in the local newspaper that you wrote us a letter on whatever and we didn't respond. The reason why that's bad is that can be used in a, an ad against us saying we're literally not doing our jobs. If you do get a response, then you've got something to hold me accountable on. And the more people that chime in on that, as a member of Congress, every letter is cataloged. Everyone is coded. Every, every person that, that writes in, we know. But you also then track what issues are coming up, which ones are going down, where people are in this, and if they're going to be there for a while, they will see a trend. They will notice that there's issues that come up over and over and over again, that there's issues that more people are writing in on, that your district is moving in a direction, or your state is moving in a direction that, if nothing else, there's a constituency you now have to be responsive to, because it is your job to do it. And most folks don't quite follow up like that, but You've got an enormous ability, given the school that you attend, the networks then your students have, those students have parents, those students have friends, they've got high school friends back home. They can leverage those networks to, at the very least, get us on record, hold us accountable, and push slowly but surely, and I'm telling you, it does matter, um, to push that forward. So two at a time, and then the last two, I think we'll have to cut after the gentleman standing in the, uh, yeah, you. <laughs> so these two and then last two. I'm a 70, <coughs> excuse me, I'm a 71 year old transgender woman from Mississippi. I began trans, <laughs> I began transition six, four years ago. So I'm late to the process. Mm -hmm. um, I volunteer, I am recently volunteering for, with HRC and in the process of learning how to lobby state legislature with the Mississippi Republican conserv socially conservative legislature, how do you reach these members? Hi, it's Elizabeth again. Um, in my first off comment then question, um, I grew up here in DC off of Foxhall Road, but I went to college in the Bible Belt. And in the early phase of my uh, transition, bathrooms were definitely a big deal. And thank God for the single occupancy bathrooms at Starbucks. Um, but my next question is more, my question is sort of like a logical one. When you fly on airplanes, 
you notice the bathrooms just say lavatory, but some bathrooms on the ground that are single occupancy don't say that. So what's the legal and logical argument that if it's on the airplane, why can't it be the same on the ground? <laughs> the autism mind in me thinks like that. Yeah. Um, not just airplanes, but everyone's home, too. Um, I think the fact of the way we operate with our homes is logic enough for why a single occupancy restroom shouldn't be gender inclusive or should be gender inclusive. Um, and there are a number of places that have been adopting inclusive policies and laws to make sure that single occupancy restrooms are gender inclusive. There's just simply, there's just simply no reason. I mean, beyond issues uh, impacting the trans community, there's just simply no reason for anyone uh, to not be able to access a single stall restroom. Um, and then how do we reach um, uh, conservative lawmakers uh, or in places that are, that are conservative? There's no question that it's a challenge. I do think that the, 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 the foundation with which we, we, we move forward in places like Mississippi is through public education. Uh, it's through storytelling. It's through making sure that um, politicians also understand that even in the reddest district, there are going to be transgender people who are your constituents. There are certainly going to be allies in that district as well, and that they will have trouble if they come for us. They might not lose, but hell, in some of these districts, they don't even want opponents, right? And so it's making sure that, one, we're educating the public, we're lifting up stories, including voices uh, of faith, LGBTQ voices of faith, uh, allied faith uh, voices of faith, faith leaders, demonstrating that we are all God's children, that uh, being LGBTQ and Christian are not mutually exclusive. HRC has been doing a lot of public education in Mississippi, Alabama, and Arkansas through our Project One America to make sure that we are amplifying those diverse voices to educate the public, um, to demonstrate that there are LGBTQ people all across those uh, three states. Um, but it's also through infrastructure building, it's through political pressure, it's through demonstrating, you know, if you aren't supportive, and certainly if you come for us, we're going to make your life harder as a politician. We're going to mobilize. We're going to organize. We might run against you. And, uh, a and I do think that that kind of pressure can certainly keep at bay some of the attacks. Uh, and I think over the long course um, with the public education can result in even the most conservative states passing protections. But we also still need protections at the federal level because we cannot wait for every single state to pass these protections. There's always been throughout every movement a moment where there's a critical mass of states that have passed these protections and the federal government takes actions to make sure that your equality under the law and protection from discrimination does not depend on your zip code or your state. Um, and that remains as true as ever and that's why it's so important that you're here to advocate not just for protections at the state and local level but to make sure that people in Congress understand that we need to pass things like the Equality Act. Very briefly, ma'am, a um, couple of things. One, particularly for a state legislature, their job is to see their, it is literally to respond to their constituents. Um, I do think that in some circumstances, certainly not all, in some, that you are going to find state legislators that have never met or know that they've met, come in contact with a member of the trans community. Some of them are gonna have a visceral reaction. Some of them, I mean, this is actually what I've tried to do with some of my Republican colleagues, which is no cameras, no nothing. Just 
come by, we will have somebody from your district. There's Republican members of the trans community too. Just talk to somebody about, there you go. Um, just literally just let me, let me tell you about what my day is like. Let me tell you what my life is like. Let me tell you about the challenges that you will be, and I can tell you this because I was there not long ago, just blind to, because there are things that I never had to think about before. And until somebody tells you, hey, this is what we have to think about, I've got two very young kids. It is, unless it's four in the morning, they're the joy of my life, right? Um, and it's often four in the morning, right? Um, but uh, any parent would do anything for those kids. You get parents of kids that are going through transition and just talk to them saying, look, for, forget this aside, let me talk to you. As a parent, it's awfully hard to ignore that. But it means, um, you know, there's the holding people accountable piece, which is undeniably part of this. There's the other side, which is understanding that some folks are not going to have that common, uh, are not going to be as familiar with these issues as others, and just walking them through it. Um, and I think there's various local organizations that, um, and I'm sure HRC can help with that, if not, to identify some of those folks by a political affiliation, by the various constituencies, and even some of the friendly law friendlier lawmakers that are allies to say, hey, will you go find a somebody who's not going to be the most conservative one, perhaps, but that's, and you're not asking them to turn around and vote for the Equality Act tomorrow, but all that you're asking them to do is to sit down and just hear you out. And it will take time, but it does, it's awfully hard to walk through, have somebody walk you through that, and then turn a blind eye and a cold ear and just say, it doesn't matter anymore. It, it's a tough thing to do. Politicians have empathy too. And not all, not all of them, <laughs> but, and I think, and I, and I just, to, just to build off of that, I think one of the things that so often happens in the community is we police our own stories. We think that our story isn't dramatic enough or extreme enough or, uh, or, or, or doesn't have enough discrimination or violence. And I think, you know, we certainly need stories of discrimination and violence that exemplify the need for these types of laws and protections, but we also need stories of hope, stories of success, stories of love and fulfillment, stories that demonstrate that transgender people exist throughout society and have a diverse range of experiences. And it is through any one of those stories that someone will find that point to latch onto and to build that empathy, including lawmakers. Last two. Uh Hi, I first want to say as like a queer activist who goes to AU, like thank you, you're an incredible role model Aww. and your work is fantastic. Um, also, so I work at an education nonprofit and a big topic that's come up lately is sex and especially sexuality education. So what do you think uh, lawmakers and activists um, can be doing or should be doing more of to kind of um, begin to create laws or policies or change in our educational institutions to have a more um, LGBTQA plus friendly and more expansive sexuality education that I know many schools are, are se severely lacking. Hold on, I'll take the next one too. Hi Sarah. Um, first, uh, I wanted to say thank you from the bottom of my heart for your book. Um, unfortunately, um, the main thing that's brought me to the forefront of uh, these issues um, Unfortunately, I did not have the courage to be open uh, my life. Um, instead, I tried killing myself six times. Um, but as a parent now, my 16-year-old has begun transitioning, and it's brought a new light um, to me to fight, um, to not give up. So I wanted to say thank you. Um, but I also wanted to ask, um, as I said, as a parent, 
um, what what kind of things um, helped you the most through your um, coming out and transitioning? Well, thank you so much for sharing that, and thank you for being here. And are you Nick? Yes. It's nice to finally meet you in person. Nice to meet you. Thank you so much for coming. Can, can I give you a hug? So, so to the first question about um, making sure that schools are more inclusive, um, you know, to your point, I think you're absolutely right that we need to make sure that we have um, uh, health education classes that reflect the full diversity of humanity, and that includes LGBTQ lives. That is absolutely necessary. We need more schools uh, and state and, and the federal government to adopt clear protections from discrimination for LGBTQ people in schools. But one that I think area that, that doesn't get enough public discussion, but one that I'm really excited about HRC working on, which is through our Welcoming Schools program, which is this uh, program that goes into elementary schools for the most part uh, and seeks to make those spaces more inclusive, not just of LGBTQ people, but really to free people from any kind of gender-based bullying and bias. And I think some of the things that, that oftentimes gets overlooked is that one of the things that oftentimes gets overlooked is that anti-LGBTQ bias at the end of the day is gender bias. It's gender stereotyping. And if we can create schools, including elementary schools, that don't reinforce this arbitrary binary, that don't reinforce these gender stereotypes, we're not just going to free LGBTQ young people. Uh, we're not just going to free them and allow them to be themselves at an early age. We're going to free everyone from the constraints of sexism, misogyny, and gender stereotyping that keep all of us from being able to live our lives authentically and fully. Um, and that's one of the great things that the Welcoming Schools program does is it goes in and it works with, with, with schools and administrators and faculty to make sure that they're not just um, inclusive environments for young LGBTQ people, but that they're moving past that those that those arbitrary uh, gender stereotypes that they're not segregating kids by gender when they're going to gym class or they're not doing these things that reinforce um, you know what for me only ended up causing me pain in elementary school um, and then Nick to, 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 to your question um, I think the most there are two things that give me comfort today and I think have given me comfort since I've come out the first is a lesson I learned after I experienced pretty significant hate and online harassment. This is, sounds absurd, but after a selfie I took in a restroom in North Carolina that I was technically barred from being in. Um, I never anticipated that there'd be a number of stories that just led with, Sarah McBride took a pee today. Um, but I, I, I took the selfie to demonstrate to people on my social media that this was an issue that impacted real people. And um, it ended up, much to my surprise, going viral. And I got a ton of hate and a ton of vitriol and threats, death threats, and threats of sexual assault and sexual violence, and just this inundation of hate that caused me, even though I knew that the news cycle would end, that the selfie would no longer be viral, that the comments would stop, it was the only moment in my life where I've ever even, for a second, thought of suicide as even a rational thought in my life. And I thought sitting there in, I was actually on, um, in Colorado, sitting in a hotel room just thinking to myself, 
this needs to go away and there is one way to put it go it away and I, I, there was a light at the end of the tunnel and for so many people that light is either very distant or they can't even see it and I went through a period of time where I wondered can I do this work can I survive this work can I can I deal with the hate that will come my way and I did a lot of reflecting and I learned that I learned something that I think makes the hate hurt less for me. And that's everyone deals with some sort of insecurity. Everyone deals with something that society tells them they should be ashamed of, whether it's their sexual orientation or gender identity or whether it's how they look, what they do, where they come from, any whole host of issues that society creates insecurities around. Everyone struggles with that. And the thing about LGBTQ people is that we've accepted that fact about us and in many cases we've moved forward from a place of pride. And the bullies see that. They see that power and they're jealous of it. They see that agency and they're jealous of it. And it was so important for me to understand that I am powerful. I am powerful just by being. LGBTQ people are powerful just by being. And for me that, that knowledge of that power that understanding of where that hate was coming from, it allowed me to move forward. And what has continued to provide me hope and provide me comfort is the knowledge that there is truly a growing alliance of allies across this country who see us, who love us, and whose cause is our cause. And no matter the slurs you hear around the dinner table, no matter the bullies you see from the White House to the playground, doesn't change the fact that there are millions of people across this country who see you, who love you, and who are fighting every single day to make sure you are treated with the dignity and fairness that you deserve. And that knowledge is not just comforting, it's transformative. And I think we only are going to continue to see that alliance of allies grow and, and gain strength and steam in the coming years. And so those things give me comfort. And Two cents very quickly here. I agree with you that you're going to see those allies grow. Um, but they're going to grow because Nick, people like you help share that story. So thank you for doing that as well. Grateful. Um, we're going to wrap up here. Um, thank you all for coming um, to Sarah. Um, I get asked an awful lot these days, um, what's life like in DC? Is it really that crazy? And oh my god, um, <coughs> what do we do? And uh, I kind of wrestle with some of those questions myself on a daily basis, but when you pop out of it, um, I remind myself that the most optimistic member of Congress, period, um, is John Lewis. And it's not even close in my mind. Um, for those of you that have met him or known him, he, he signs, when he signs his name, people ask, uh, people ask for an autograph, he signs his books. He always signs it, keep the faith. Um, and he's the most optimistic one because he will tell you story after story of where he has seen the capacity for humans to change. Um, where he has lived it, um, the brutality of the worst hate um, up close and where his government had continued and continually failed him to one now where he can be the moral conscious of our legislative body. Um, through a lot of pain and a lot of suffering that he should not have had to go through, but he did. And he knows that and he'll talk about how we take these steps forward but yes oftentimes take these steps back but that 
we will continue that march towards progress. And in your words, that tomorrow will be different. Um, and I cannot help but um, in the past hour listening to to your words, Sarah, talk about um, your journey, uh, your ability to give voice to so many others. Um, to see those two stories blend together where what is so obvious to a younger generation today about uh, racial disparities in our country and an immediate visceral reaction to say, that's wrong. Um, there are not good people on both sides. We do not treat people this way. There's, um, there's a, a human decency and dignity that we all celebrate, that we all share, and that that is the de facto truth. Um, to know that, that that effort that Mr. Lewis has put on his shoulders and that he continues to champion um, is exactly 100% in line with your advocacy and your efforts and um, the voice that you bring uh, to uh, what is a discussion on civil rights and the ability of the most powerful nation in the world to strive to continue to become a more perfect union, knowing that we're not there yet and we might never be, but that it is through that that effort and that fight and that grind um, and that sweat and those tears that our humanity comes forth and that we celebrate it. Um, so I am so honored to have been with you tonight, grateful um, for your book, your words, your eloquence, your courage. Um, please do not move to the fourth district of Massachusetts. Um, but other than that, I wish you all the success. And I am happy to sign some books. Live at Politics and Prose is a co-production of The Bookstore and Slate.com. For information about upcoming Politics and Prose events, visit politics-prose.com. And please let us know what you think of this program. Our email is podcasts at slate.com.